Welcome to Cato Audio for November 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, former Obama administration economist Jason Furman discusses the blind spots he sees of both left and right when it comes to economic policy. Google chief economist Hal Varian discusses how populism is driving the debate over big tech. And I chat with Cato's Emily Eakins about why we love the freedom of speech until someone says something we don't like. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. One of the most credible complaints against libertarians is that it's overwhelmingly men. And I feel that. I was lucky enough to find a wife who agreed with me on all of these uh, issues and was able to marry her, but many men were not so lucky. Um, And we're here to talk about three women in particular who uh, are some of the most important, not just women, but people uh, in the libertarian movement throughout history. And of course, the new book is Freedom's Furies by Timothy Sandifer. And uh, we're also joined by uh, Peter Baggy, who is a contributing editor uh, and cartoonist at Reason Magazine, and I uh, have enjoyed his work for many years. And Peter, the reason you're here is because you've done long pieces about these women. And, right. Uh, well, I did I, a yeah, I did a full length uh, biography of Rose Wilder Lane, and I once did a shorter biography of uh, Patterson. And uh, I, I enjoyed those as well, and actually learned a few things about uh, about those women from your writings. But but Tim, if you wouldn't mind uh, teeing this up a bit, this book uh, published by uh, Libertarianism.org, a project of the Cato Institute. Tim, give us uh, a sense why uh, you know we knew. We know about these women. Most people don't. Uh, who are they? Well, they're some of the most interesting literary figures and thinkers of the mid 20th century, in my opinion. I was always very interested in the fact that these three women, all in the same year, 1943, published books that basically began the modern libertarian movement. With uh, Ayn Rand, it was The Fountainhead. With Isabel Patterson, it was The God of the Machine. And with Rose Wilder Lane, it was The Discovery of Freedom. And I had just always thought it was an interesting historical fact that the three of them knew each other and and wrote these books at the same time. So I had always wanted to kind of delve into their relationships. And it turned out that their their stories, their personal stories and their friendships are are a fascinating sort of kaleidoscope of of 1930s and 1940s literature and politics. Yeah. So so many so many people have read The Fountainhead. I uh, suspect that fewer people have read those two other books. Uh, I, the book, the book from Patterson that you mentioned, I have actually not read. Uh, but the discovery of freedom was um, a revelation. Not, but not just because of uh, what was in it, but it was just it. It was <laughs> incredibly well written. It was a book that really made me feel like uh, it gave me a lot more confidence about how I think about the world that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. It's a beautiful, you're right, it's beautifully written. It has some historical inaccuracies that Lane later found very embarrassing. And so she wanted to rewrite the book and republish it 
under the title The Discovery of Liberty toward the end of her life, and she never finished that project. But I think the book is is a beautiful book and, and really is when I'm asked what is the first book somebody should read if they're interested in what libertarianism is about, that's usually the first one that I recommend. The God of the Machine is a is much more complicated. It's a it's a difficult text in places. It is it, it very elegantly written for the most part, but it has its hard points because um, Patterson was trying to write a sort of modern economic and um, we might say political economy. And she was writing this without any training, formal training as an economist. And so it, it is sprinkled throughout with really brilliant insights, but it does have its moments where it's kind of hard going. OK, so what what did these books accomplish? Well, the, the discovery of freedom, I think it, it's key. What was really unique about it was its attempt to understand economics in terms of, um, you might say, physical mechanics. So the book says that the economy is a kind of a machine that moves energy from one form to another. And Patterson was very insistent that she was not speaking in metaphor. She meant this literally, that the economy really is actually a machine. And, uh, you know, one criticism is that she doesn't really make too clear what that exactly means. And there are passages where one might scratch one's head. But for the most part, she is literally correct that the economy is a mechanism by which different kinds of energy are moved about and changed and transformed to serve human needs. The Discovery of Freedom is a more historical work. She, uh, Lane is trying to take a, a look at how the idea of freedom, of individual freedom, is discovered. And the key, the key to that book is what she means by freedom is the inalienable self-actuality of human beings. What I mean is human beings are fundamentally responsible for themselves and their own actions. They can't give away that responsibility metaphysically speaking, it's impossible. And that political collectivism, whether it's fascism or communism, what have you, is all an attempt to kind of get away from that self-responsibility, which is impossible. And of course, the key to the fountainhead is Rand is is trying to contrast what she refers to as the first hander and the second hander. The first hander is the person whose primary concern is with nature, with co with the conquest and manipulation of nature for his own purposes. The second hander is concerned with conquering and controlling and dictating to people. The, the second hander sees the world in terms of how other people relate to him. And Rand is, is contrasting these two in order to argue that effectively that freedom is the, the state for the first hander. Now, I should add, The Fountainhead is not a political novel. In fact, there's really there are hardly any characters in it who are even related to the government. Um, so it's it's a much more abstract novel than that. But it it's political implications are very clear. Uh, Peter, you've written about uh, two of these women uh, in, in your work. What what were some of the things that you read in their works that made you say, oh, th well, this is something I need to focus on? Well, particularly with Rose Lane, I read I'd never heard of Rose Wilder Lane um, until I read uh, Brian Dougherty's book, uh, The History of uh, Libertarianism, Radicals for Capitalism. And uh, and just reading anecdotes about Rose Lane, I just thought, uh, who is this person? She sounds crazy and brilliant at the same time, you know, which I guess is a good way to describe her. Um, Very so, true. And that led, me to, that led me to read much more about her, and that got me 
mainly through her, I became more interested in um, in Patterson. And, uh, and of course, with uh, Anne Rand, I read The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged when I was 19 years old. And, um, and, I, and I have touched on, I once did like a very a one page comic strip about Ayn Rand and, uh, and she also make, would make cameo appearances in the comics that I did about um, Rose Lane and, and Isabel Patterson. Peter, you wrote a piece about uh, Isabel Patterson a while, uh, years ago. And I remember coming away from that thinking, she doesn't seem like a very uh, nice person. Oh, especially, and it's made even more clear in in um, Timothy's new book that especially as she got older, she became very cantankerous, became very difficult to be friends with. Um, I didn't even realize Timothy until reading your book <laughs> how diff- what a difficult person she became in her old age. Yeah, I think Patterson was frustrated at not just um, the political state of affairs that uh, collectivism in various forms was making so much headway in the world, but also frustrated at the state of her own career. She had been um, one of the more outspoken pro-free market anti-New Dealer columnists of the 1930s and 40s. But as the, toward the uh, the end of her career in the, in the late 40s, she started seeing that there was no backing away from the New Deal in her lifetime, that Dorothy Thompson and Walter Lippmann and writers like that were getting much more attention. And I think that was um, that led to a sort of personal bitterness. She had always been cantankerous, as you say, but I think it, it drove away her friends. And then she had a close friend, Patterson had a very close friend named Will Cuppy, who was also a, 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 a columnist for the newspaper she worked for, who committed suicide uh, close to the end of her life. And I think these things combined really led to a, a, a darkness that took over toward the end of her life and drove a lot of her friends away, unfortunately. That's, well, that's, it was surprising, uh, though, that she could be so hard and be so difficult with people who actually agreed with her. Yeah. On Rose Wilder Lane, I have suggested to my uh, cousin who uh, had been reading the Little House books to her kids that the discovery of freedom might make a pretty decent capstone to that series. And, yeah, uh, sure. Because you're talking about, in a sense, these these people in a, in a very difficult situation trying to have a family, live a life, and then uh, the discovery of freedom kind of help help me understand at least what's this all for yes and so for those who don't know lane was rose was a uh, uh, laura ingalls wilder's daughter and co-authored without giving herself credit co-authored the little house on the prairie books she also wrote novels that were based on some of the same stories that the little house on the prairie books were were based on and that she wrote for adults so for her biggest um, success was a novel called Free Land, which was sort of the story of of her father, Almanza Wilder, as a young man, and comments, of course, on the politics of the 1930s. Lane also wrote a couple novels that you might, so to speak, say were were about uh, the next generation after The Little House on the Prairie Books. I'm thinking of um, Old Hometown, which is really more of a collection of short stories that are stuck together into a novel. And I think Peter agrees with me that this is Lane's best single book. 
And it comments on sort of the 1900 generation, the, the people who would go on to witness the ratification of the 19th Amendment, for example. So 1943, uh, this is an important year for the libertarian movement because these women uh, published their uh, important books. Uh, for uh, Ayn Rand, how well was The Fountainhead received initially? The Fountainhead was received pretty well at first. Um, it only really became the bestseller that it became in the years that followed, kind of an unusual word-of-mouth success that pushed it up the bestseller lists in the, the 1945-46, those years. And, of course, then the movie came out in 1949. But at first, The Fountainhead was only a moderate success. Patterson tried as hard as she could in her newspaper column to advertise it, to mention it frequently. Uh, and ironically enough, the only really bad review that I mean, the worst review, the, the review that Rand hated the most appeared in Patterson's newspaper. It was written by another columnist. And years later, one of the reasons that Patterson and Rand would end their friendship was when Rand discovered that Patterson could have reviewed it and chose not to for some unknown reason. But The Fountainhead was received fairly well. Uh, the discovery of freedom was a bomb. Nobody bought it. And uh, the, the, the God of the Machine, Patterson's own book, was only modestly successful. It received, it received respectable reviews, but not many people bought and read it. 1943 was a, a really interesting year because, of course, by that time, America had entered the war and attitudes towards politics and authority were really starting to change. In the late 1930s, there had been a real vogue for dictatorship. Even in the United States, there were prominent newspaper authors, for instance, Walter Lippmann, who uh, encouraged or William Randolph Hearst also encouraged Franklin Roosevelt to act as a dictator. And this was a very popular attitude among intellectuals of the time. By 1943, you flash forward just a few years later, and now America is at war with the uh, authoritarian, totalitarian state of Nazi Germany. And you see public attitudes really starting to change. To me, as a lawyer, the one the example that really pops out to mind is the Supreme Court in the Pledge of Allegiance cases. In 1940, the Supreme Court had held that it was constitutional to force children to pledge allegiance to the flag, whether they wanted to or not, because children had to have loyalty to the state indoctrinated into their minds in public schools. 1943, only three years later, the Supreme Court reverses course and overrules that decision and says, no, the government has no legitimate place dictating to anybody their political beliefs. And that change, I think, is kind of reflected in a public attitude that becomes more receptive to individual freedom and really fits well with the publication of these three books in 1943. Peter, in your book, Credo, the Rose Wilder Lane story. What do you cover in her life? What stood out to you as being the most important to uh, represent in comic form? Uh, well, I covered pretty much her whole life from the time she was three to uh, um, till her death. Um, this was probably the most crucial moment this time when these two women were uh, writing the books that we're discussing. And, um, and it probably was the period that most defined her, at least as the way she is thought of today by people who know who she is, um, even more so than co-writing the little house books. Um, and, and it is very fascinating, the relationship between these three, three women. It seemed to me that they, uh, they took refuge in each other. They, they seemed at first to be delighted that there were these other people, possibly even more so other women that, uh, uh, 
shared their worldview and their political views and their opinions on what was happening to American society. Um, and it also is interesting how, uh, uh, how they couldn't, maybe, maybe it was so important to them that they agreed on so much that they found it very difficult when uh, they began to disagree with each other and their disagreements were so slight. They were so small. They, when you read about like the letters that, um, that Timothy goes into detail with in this book, uh, just parsing almost every sentence using the word can instead of the word is, um, and how they found it almost intolerable. It was like too painful for them to disagree on anything. And another big difference too, especially with Rand, was that the other two were uh, um, believed in God. And Rand was a very a devout atheist, if you could say, <laughs> describe somebody that way. And that Evangel was something that Evangelical Rand even. Yes. And she found that just she could not get her head around the fact that the other two women believed in a higher power. Sure. I would actually disagree with the uh, calling Rand an, a, an evangelical atheist. She was. But a devout atheist is actually a very good term for her. Rand w believed very strongly in the virtue of reverence. And and in fact, the Fountainhead, you could say the, the entire theme of the Fountainhead is reverence, but it's reverence for human capability, for human potential. So although she was an atheist, she believed in the virtue of respecting and, uh, uh, and taking very seriously moral values. And so she did not see herself as as on a mission to spread the idea of godlessness, but she definitely was an atheist while at the same time believing very much in devotion to one's values. An interesting example of this that came up, and and I should say what I found most interesting while writing the book that I, I had not really realized before starting out was the incredible influence that Sinclair Lewis had on all three of these writers. Rand wrote a fan letter to Sinclair Lewis after his novel, It Can't Happen Here, came out, in which she speaks of Lewis as the foremost spokesman for the religion, you might say, of humanism, to which she uh, is so devoted. And she writes it almost like a, a penitential, reverential letter to this writer. So she, in that sense, yes, she certainly was an outspoken atheist, but she also thought it was very important not to be uh, irreverent toward the values of life. It, you have a list, uh, Tim, in your book, uh, sort of year by year, major publications and major events that were that were related, influential to, and uh, impacted by the 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 lives of of these women. And you forget that, of course, Franklin Roosevelt died in 1945. Uh, economics in One Lesson comes out uh, just a few years later, like a lot of other books that we consider sort of foundational uh, as important libertarian books to communicate to yeah. a broad audience followed these three books. That's right. Um, of course, uh, The Road to Serfdom by Hayek comes out in 44. Omnipotent Government by uh, uh, Mises comes out. And as he said, uh, Economics in One Lesson, I think, was 46. And so these these books, you know, they were kind of waiting in the wings in response to the New Deal and the waves of collectivism throughout Europe. But Patterson, Rand and Lane 
um, anticipate them, and not just in time, but they also did not know these other writers. Uh, they, I think Patterson and Rand and Lane all read Mises, but only Lane appears to have read Hayek. I mean, Lane and Rand read Hayek, but Patterson did not. Uh, and another aspect of this is that Patterson was really the guru of the three. She was recognized, you might say, first among equals of the three women. Uh, Rand treated Patterson with an Im immense respect and and Patterson taught Rand a great deal of the philosophy and politics that she later learned her economics. Uh, and Lane spent um, – she uh, just adored Patterson. She regarded Patterson as her ideal of, an, of what an intellectual ought to be. And Patterson was ent almost entirely self-educated. She was a woman from the Western frontier who had grown up in the 1880s and basically taught herself all of the economics and politics and literature that she knew. So these are three truly remarkable intellectuals of the like of which you rarely see today. Peter? Yeah, they, um, they also, the three of them collectively pretty much defined what we think of as modern American libertarianism. And even some of their peers, like uh, Albert J. Nock, he, he told them as much. I think he knew, I think he knew all three of them and uh, certainly knew Lane. And, uh, and he just, he said that the three of you make us male uh, political commentators uh, seem like Confederate money, <laughs> which I always thought was a very funny expression. But um, yeah, it, it seems from that point that it seems to me, and I'm sure a lot of people agree, that in this year that we're talking about, 1943, in the three books they wrote, to anybody who is familiar with all three of them, that it really was a defining moment. They encapsulated what libertarianism means, not only in America in 1943, but America today. Yeah, I've, I've, in reading uh, some works by uh, Leonard Reed, among others, he tries to sort of lay out and said, you guys don't really know what it felt like in the 30s and 40s in America about the, the ideas that held such immense sway. Uh, and of course, th these three women were were writing about that leading up to the publications of of their books. And, uh, you know, that in retrospect, you look back on these books and you're like, well, yes, obviously a lot of this makes a lot of sense. But in that environment, I imagine it was uh, potentially very uh, significant headwinds, let's just say, uh, in terms of, of producing work of the quality and sort of strident ideas presented. Yeah, well... Um... The Roosevelt administration probably is the closest we've ever come to a dictatorship. You know, it might not be an actual dictatorship, but it sure came close. And a lot of people pretty much wanted that. Obviously, he kept Roosevelt kept winning in the landslide. So, uh, based on the fear that people were experiencing, they really felt like we should have a dictatorship. Many of them used Mussolini, uh, fascist Italy, as a model. It's like, look at uh, how he's revolutionized the economy of Italy. We should do the same thing. We should mimic him. Even liberals thought that at the time. Oh, and also the way that Roosevelt would use the power of the state to punish anybody that criticized him. You know, the, he was the first person to weaponize the IRS. A great deal of 
of Roosevelt's control in terms of politics and information was his control over the technology of radio. Radio was a revolutionary technology at the time. It was you know, the Twitter of its day. And under Roosevelt, the Federal Communications Act comes into place and the Federal Communica Communications Commission is in charge of licensing radio, uh, radio stations. And it's entirely staffed by Roosevelt appointees. And as a result, the radio stations consciously curtail any criticism of, of Roosevelt. The head of NBC came out and said, we will not allow anything critical of the administration on our radio stations. And this is the go-to form of information for the era. So in large part, Roosevelt's control over the mass media, he, he largely – he allowed the newspapers for the most part to criticize him if they wanted to, although he also sort of co-opted the press by hiring a great many of the newspaper reporters of the day onto the administration's payrolls. So uh, in any – either print or in uh, – on radio or in Hollywood, there was really dominance of the pro-Roosevelt side and you have Patterson and a few others on the other side sort of criticizing him and, and typically being ignored. Right. Very marginalized. So Sinclair Lewis in 1920 published a book called Main Street, which truly blew away the literary world of the United States. Lewis went on to be the first American writer to win the Nobel Prize for literature. And his wife, Dorothy Thompson, was uh, close friends and possibly lovers with Rose Wilder Lane. In fact, Lane babysat for them when Lewis went off to Europe to collect his Nobel Prize. Meanwhile, Rand arrives in America in the late 1920s and she starts reading – well, she had probably read Lewis in Russia in, um, already. But when she comes to the United States, she starts really absorbing uh, uh, Lewis's novels, Main Street, Babbitt and, and so forth. And that is a heavy influence on the Fountainhead. Meanwhile, Patterson had known uh, – Lewis for many years because he was – first, he was an editor before he became a prominent writer and he had rejected one of her own manuscripts when she had tried to get one of her novels published. And Lewis gives voice to this idea of, of a rebellion against the ordinariness and boring dullness of the America of the 1920s. It's sort of this rebellion of the intellectuals. And that really gets transformed in the 1940s when the war comes and people start really sort of rethinking the virtues of bourgeois America. And to me, Patterson is the one who is most uh, expressive of the what, what Deirdre McCloskey has called the bourgeois values of America. Patterson is insistent that it, there's nothing wrong with wanting an ordinary life of safety and happiness and American capitalism offers that and she's watching it all slip away. Meanwhile, in the mid-1930s, Lewis had published this prophetic book about the coming of dictatorship in America, which is It Can't Happen Here. And Rand called it the, the greatest novel of the 20th century. And Atlas Shrugged largely – embodies that. In fact, I should say all three of these writers wrote novels about the Great Depression in one way or another. For Patterson, it was a book called The Golden Vanity. For Lane, it was Free Land. And for Ayn Rand, it was Atlas Shrugged. A lot of the time people talk about Atlas Shrugged as being, you know, a prophetic novel about the future. In fact, it's largely retrospective. Much of what happens in fiction in Atlas Shrugged actually did happen in reality during the New Deal. And that history has been ignored, forgotten, or covered up by a historiography profession that is so much on board with the New Deal era. All right. 
We're going to leave it there. The book is Freedom's Furies from Libertarianism.org. Its author is Tim Sandifer, also joined by Peter Baggy, contributing editor and cartoonist at Reason, who's done a great deal of work over many years that I've certainly enjoyed. And of course, you can get your copy of Freedom's Furies at Cato.org and Libertarianism.org. At the Cato Institute's New Challenges to the Free Economy held last month, former Obama Council of Economic Advisors Chair Jason Furman addressed what he sees as the blind spots of the left and right and libertarians when it comes to crafting better economic policy. One of the big problems in public policy is that we don't just have one objective. We often have many objectives, and the objectives we have may differ depending on our values. One objective would be to raise as many people's incomes as much as possible. We also care about people's lives, protecting their lives in a pandemic, extending them and letting them live longer and healthier lives. We might care about climate change. We might care about poverty. We might care about inequality. Um, there's many objectives that could show up on that list. When thinking about how to make policy with those different objectives, I think there's a sort of classic mistake that's more common um, among liberals and a classic mistake that's more common um, among conservatives. And I'm going to caricature both of these mistakes. And of course, these don't apply to everyone or everything. They're just tendencies. The liberal mistake is to get the sign wrong. The Republican mistake, the conservative mistake, is to get the magnitude wrong. I'll explain what I mean by that. With the liberal, the temptation is to think that all good things go together, that there aren't any trade-offs at all. You see that in the idea that the best way to deal with climate change is to invest in green technologies that'll create more green jobs, increase economic growth, and slow carbon emissions. Or the best thing during a pandemic is to have um, restrictions on activity, because that won't just save lives, it also, by saving lives, will um, help the economy. And that all of these good things um, go together. And that's what I mean by getting the sign wrong. Not that it's never the case that all good things go together. I can think of another example, a number of examples where you can do things that both help the economy and help climate change. But an awful lot of what you'd want to do on climate change, you're doing not because you want more economic growth, but because you want um, less emissions. And they're not things you would have done in a world where carbon dioxide was a completely um, harmless gas. So that's what I mean by getting the sign wrong on the trade-off. Um, what's the consequence of this? Well, if you applied this philosophy rigorously and analytically carefully, you'd end up doing too little. You shouldn't just combine your interventions to things that advance, let's say you have just two goals, to things that advance both of your goals simultaneously, everything that advances both goals you should do. If you, have, if you care about inequality and growth, anything that helps growth while reducing inequality, you should want to do it. But once you've done all of that, you then want to do some more things. You want to do some things where you give up a tiny bit of growth to get a big gain on your other goal, climate change, poverty, save lives, or vice versa, um, that you um, give up a little bit of lives, a little bit of climate change, in order to make a huge stride forward um, for growth. 
So analytically, if you were rigorous about it, you'd end up doing too little. Uh, more common, though, the mistake is not to be rigorous about it, and instead to fool yourself into thinking that whatever you're doing is going to accomplish all your goals um, simultaneously. Now, if it's well-intentioned and you're setting up a wonderful program for children, a wonderful program for climate change, a wonderful program to save lives in the pandemic, you know, what's the harm of kidding yourself and rather than talking about some side effects and unintended consequences, just saying um, that all good things go together? Um, I think there are some downsides to it. One is the world really does impose some constraints on you. If you try to, for example, do a massive fiscal stimulus in an economy that's very close to its capacity, you're just not going to be able to have no trade-off between unemployment and inflation. In fact, you might end up at the wrong side of that trade-off with a lot of inflation and no real ability to budge or push the unemployment rate um, any lower. You might end up with a bunch of regulations to deal with climate change that themselves have a set of distributional costs that in addition to the benefits for climate change, you want to say it's going to be more expensive to buy this microwave, to buy this car. That might be worth it. That might not be worth it. But to pretend that's not the case, you can end up inadvertently harming people. And the third problem is you may not actually be able to get what you want done if you trick yourself into thinking it benefits everyone. If you think there's no costs or no downsides to your policy, um, you don't expect any opposition um, to it. I remember one issue we worked on in the White House, one of the people working on it assured me that this new regulation we were going to have for business, uh, that the businesses were going to actually love it because it was going to increase predictability, make their lives easier, make their lives better, and their stock price all fell 5% on the day we announced it. Um, that doesn't make the policy bad, by the way. Our goal was not to maximize the stock price of these companies. It was to maximize social welfare. But as an input into that social welfare analysis, part of it uh, was how it affected those companies. And I trust their shareholders ex post evaluation of regulation more than the well-intentioned staffer who assured me um, that they would all love and um, appreciate it. So you can end up with policies that have losers the losers aren't fooled by your happy talk. They understand they're losers. The problem isn't that they don't understand economics. It's that they do. Um, they don't like it. And if you don't understand that and figure out compensation, you can't build um, a political coalition. The conservative error can be one of not the, getting the sign wrong on the trade-off, but getting the magnitude wrong. Thinking that whatever it is, the effects on economic growth are going to be so large that you don't need to think about um, anything else. If you look at the recent tax cuts in um, the United Kingdom that were originally proposed, I think the people proposing it, insofar as they had any analysis at all, thought it would increase economic growth so much that those tax cuts would pay for themselves. Whatever staffer assured the prime minister that that was the case um, had to deal with the fact that after they were announced, financial markets disagreed um, and did not think that those tax cuts were going to pay for themselves. Interest rates um, skyrocketed. 
The Tax Cut and Jobs Act, Robert Barrow and I, um, he coming from more of the conservative side, me coming from more of the liberal side, um, did a paper on it together in terms of the economic impact. Originally, we thought we might set, you know, come up to, with two different conclusions and crosswalk between our conclusions and explain why we had a different view. We ended up having the same view, so we didn't need to do that. That view was that they would add 0.2 to 0.4 percentage point to the level of output after a decade. That might be good enough to support the legislation, and for Robert, it was. Um, in my case, that was a relatively small gain in growth, and some of the distributional and other harms, um, from my perspective, um, outweighed that, and so my judgment was against that legislation. Um, but you could only make that judgment if you thought it was going to add you know, 80% to growth, then you're going to want to do it. If you think any time you raise tax cuts on a high-income household, any time you do anything for climate change, it's going to just wreck the economy and destroy it, well, then you can't really get into a cost-benefit conversation when the costs are infinite. And that is um, what I think, in some sense, is the conservative vice. So what's the solution to both of these? Here I'm going to uh, talk my book and argue it's more economics education, um, whether that's in my class, reading the many things uh, that many of the people in this room um, read, and thinking in a disciplined way about issues like budget constraints, like trade-offs, like cost-benefit, um, and the like. What I'm concerned about is that there just seems to be less and less interest in that in the world today than there has been um, in the past. Well, it's always a little bit concerning when you think the past was some golden age paradise, and when you were more a part of that past than you are of the present, you probably need to check that temptation um, even more. But my perception is when you look at something like student loans in the United States, that not a lot of economic analysis went into the consequences of that. And insofar as it did, it focused on one half of the equation, the direct effects of the policy, who would benefit, without looking at the other half, on the indirect unintended consequences for uh, tuition, future indebtedness, who would ultimately foot the bill, inflation, um, interest rates, um, and the like. The UK, with what they did with their recent mini-budget, would be another example of where economists don't seem to have really been in the room doing the analysis, because I don't think it's that they have bad economists at the Office of Budget Responsibility in the UK. It was just they didn't want to bring them in and um, listen to them. Now, I think we have to try to understand why um, economists are listened to um, less than they should. And I'm on the record of saying, I'm glad President Obama didn't listen to everything I had to say, because if he did, um, he wouldn't have had a second term. And <laughs> if he had managed to limp along that far, it would have been a sort of disastrous one. So I think you do need to have some balance of what you can pass Congress, what people can live with, what's implementable, a whole set of considerations. Um, economists don't have, but the economic portion of it is in you know, considerably shorter supply, or actually I think the problem is in shorter demand than almost any of those other considerations. Jason Furman was the head of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration.
At that same event, new challenges to the free economy held last month, Google chief economist Hal Varian discussed the ways in which populism affects the debate over antitrust and big tech. So I'm going to say a few words about uh, antitrust populism and online platforms and um, start with the premise there's a lot of misinformation about the tech industry, uh, especially on the populist side. But the good news is there's also a lot of publicly accessible information that's available to everybody uh, through things like financial filings and blog posts, advertiser documentation, uh, academic research, industry newsletters, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and in fact, of course, I can't uh, dis describe this information in depth uh, in my uh, five to seven minute uh, remarks. And, and of course, I understand clearly that you can't really convince the true believers, but there is some hope for the un undecided. So I've compiled uh, over the years several uh, white papers on exactly this topic. Uh, how does the information compare to the misinformation that we're seeing uh, externally? And so here's just a list. Uh, so in my seven minutes, I'm going to talk about each of these uh, points <clears throat> for maybe 12, 12 seconds apiece, I think I calculated. But I'm only going to talk about the, uh, the first uh, five of them uh, there because that's... Uh, a good example of what can be done with these other topics. So competition, we'll start there. Where's the competition? And uh, in fact, if you look at the competition among the big five uh, ecosystems, they're all competing very heavily against each other. And uh, that's why we see these low prices and high rate of innovation. And just take a second and look down that list and see the areas in which there is uh, in really intense competition among the big tech uh, firms. And what about search? I'm particularly asked about that. People say, well, of course, there's competition in mobile phones and things of that sort. But what about search? Well, there it's really a tough business because just ask AOL and AltaVista, AskGees, Yahoo, Inc. to me, Excite. I mean, they're... There's a huge, there was a huge competition among those firms. And why is it so difficult? It's because you have to answer 100% of the searches, but you only get paid for about 6% of those, namely the commercial searches or the ads. And uh, that means you have to build this big infrastructure to be able to answer all questions that come in uh, in an acceptable way. And uh, on the other hand, there's really only a few of them that make money. And that's true in advertising in general. It's true for magazines, newspapers, billboards, on and on and on. They're uh, not something that people seek out, really, but they see as a side effect of things that they do seek out, information of one sort or another. And the competition for those commercial searches is very intense. You've got all the Amazon, eBay, Facebook, Yelp, Travelocity, on and on and on. We're trying to uh, build up enough of a brand recognition that people navigate directly to those sites rather than going through any kind of, uh, of search. So if you look at direct navigation, organic clicks, app clicks, and so on, you'll see that the most popular way that people get to a website is a direct navigation. You go to Target because you want to buy some socks or something like that. Most people have favorites, whether it's uh, shopping or whether it's weather, and uh, direct navigation is the usual way they 
get to those sites, look at organic search where you're looking at a search and then looking at the organic results rather than the ad results, organic links, search ads, and so on. Search ads are only about 8% of the entry points to shopping uh, sessions. Uh, and again, the same is true of other commercials. They, they, other commercials and advertising, they tend to be, uh, what should I say, a small part of total browsing, whatever the medium is. And what's been the result of this for spending on ads? Well, in fact, the U.S. spending on advertising as a share of GDP has been going down uh, for the last uh, few decades. Now it's uh, less than a percent of the uh, total spending on uh, advertising as a share of GDP. The BEA has assembled a, a nice uh, table with 100 years of uh, advertising spend. And you can see that, generally speaking, we're seeing a period where advertising has become very cheap and uh, very easy to use. And in fact, if you look at search ad prices in particular, this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the prices there have declined about 60% in the decade from 2010 to 2020. So it was a really dramatic uh, change, and that's because of all that competition that I outlined in the first slide. Point about innovation, if you look at the tech companies, they are the largest companies in terms of innovation uh, globally. Uh, Amazon, Alphabet lead the pack, then Samsung, Volkswagen, Microsoft, Huawei, etc. And if we take the uh, GAFA firms, the top big five, and uh, combine those with the other technology firms, you see a huge, all that red bars are showing you the amount of R&D that's going into, uh, in, in, into uh, information technology research. So these days, uh, IT is mostly... Sorry, the innovation comes from information technology, from biotech of one form or another, and, uh, and automotive are really the big uh, areas that show up as uh, spending on uh, as a fraction of GDP. And if you look at Google in particular, the R&D share of revenue at Google has doubled since 2002. So that's a picture of what spend a fraction of revenue is being spent by Google, 16%. Did I say that? No, not in this part. Around 16% of, uh, of earnings. 6,000 research reports, 60,000 patents, granting about uh, 2,500 a year. And, uh, of course, I recognize that patents are not uh, the be-all and end-all of metrics for uh, uh, innovation. In fact, a lot of what Google's doing is open source and uh, open uh, open data, but uh, it's a it's an important metric. Uh, in fact, one of the few available metrics to really measure the uh, innovation in a consistent way across uh, industries. And let's see, acquisitions. Say a word or two about acquisitions. Half of the acquisitions at Google have seven or fewer people. This is quite remarkable. 95 acquisitions had three or fewer employees because what's really going on in Silicon Valley is uh, aqua hires. That is an acquisition that's intended primarily to get the uh, intellectual capital from uh, an, an enterprise to contribute to your own uh, production. Uh, nice example, great case in point is Android. When it was acquired, there were four engineers in Android. 
and uh, only a prototype operating system that kind of sort of worked. Uh, but what they really had was a vision of what you could do uh, with respect to a model of creating this mobile phone infrastructure that we've found so, uh, so useful. So generally speaking, it's a heck of a lot easier to hire a five engineer, to, to acquire a five engineer company than it is to hire five engineers separately because they're people who work together, they've accomplished something, they've shown their skills, and that's the real asset uh, in Silicon Valley is being able to have that labor market or the intellectual capital market function in a way that really uh, contributes to, to innovation. And five times as many acquisitions and IPOs. IPOs get all the press, but actually if you look at what happens in Silicon Valley, you're seeing primarily acquisitions as the exit point from venture capital. And it's well known if you look at Silicon Valley Bank and you ask, uh, and they ask in their uh, quarterly survey, uh, what's the likely exit for your uh, firm and uh, roughly 50% of the people say we expect to be acquired because that's the way to get your product and your innovation to market is to uh, align yourself with uh, a larger firm who can specialize in those sorts of activities. Hal Varian is the chief economist at Google. As Americans, we all claim to love the freedom of speech. That's right up until someone says something we don't like. And that has profound implications for the future of politics and our liberties. Emily Eakins directs polling at the Cato Institute. In this Cato Audio exclusive, we discussed what Americans' situational support for free speech will mean going forward. Americans recognize that freedom of speech is an important value and most Americans at least if you're if you've just barely scratching the surface they love free speech is that fair <laughs> that's absolutely true poll after poll will show that Americans support the first amendment they support the idea of free speech especially in the abstract if you ask them about whether or not government should make a law about hate speech in general, um, about six in 10 will say no. That's not because Americans support hate speech or think it's OK. We've actually polled to kind of distinct, you know, distinguish that from what people think the law should be. Eighty percent of Americans think that that kind of speech is is morally unacceptable. Um, but they do make a distinction between what the government should regulate and you know what people like what what is right to say and what's wrong to say but as you know there's a lot there's a lot more there actually to uncover so if you scratch the surface a little more uh the line that that uh in a discussion that you and I had before that I had that you immediately stole and I'm going to reclaim it back Americans love free speech until they hear someone say something that they really don't like 
<laughs> that's exactly right. And that's what we do in our polling is that we like to get specific. In Cato National Public Opinion Polls, we ask people about specific things that someone could say, for instance, a speech that they might give on a college campus or something they could post to a social media site like Facebook or Twitter um, or something that they could, an opinion that they might hold at work. And we ask what should happen to that person. Um, so let's just take college campuses because I think that that's such a microcosm of what we're seeing more broadly um, in the United States um, about people that are invited to a college campus to talk about a particular subject, students that, you know, some students find what they're going to talk about to cause emotional distress. And so they seek to shut down the speaker. So we asked about a, a, a bunch of different scenarios and asked what should happen to a speaker? Should they be allowed to speak or not? And we got specific, like asking questions about what about someone who would um, criticize the police? About half of Americans say, oh, no, someone that says someone that criticizes the police in public should not be allowed to speak. Um, then we asked, well, what about someone that says that the police are justified um, in how they stop different racial groups at different rates? You, again, you got about 50 percent of Americans that say, oh, no, someone shouldn't be allowed to say that at a public university. Um, and we, we asked about a lot of different things about, you know, deporting illegal immigrants, about whether or not Christians are backwards and brainwashed. Um, are all white people racist to the Holocaust occur? Like all these different things that people could say that would offend sensibilities all across the political spectrum. And what you got, what we found is about half of Americans on any given controversial subject would want to shut down a speaker that had said those things, even if it wasn't in their speech, but someone who had said that. Um, and so what does that lead us to? If universities acquiesce to any time there's a, you know, like a significant minority of students who are, when I mean minority, I mean numerical minority, um, just some group of students that are displeased with something that someone's going to say on campus. If they acquiesce and shut them down, they're going to shut down almost anyone that could say something interesting about public policy today, whether it's someone that says the police are justified or whether it's someone that says the police need to be reformed and are criticizing current police practices. And so what I would say is how can we possibly reform police practices or Im our immigration system or any of these important topics if we just shut down any discussion or debate anytime a group of people find themselves emotionally distressed by an opinion that they find disagreeable? So... <laughs> What does what does polling tell us what how that what that strategy ought to look like? How to unravel that problem. <laughs> right. Well, well, I think the first step is for people to see all the different opinions that other Americans want to shut down. I mean, I'd like to think that that our fellow Americans have a sense of principle and that they want to defend other people's rights to say what they want to say, even if they strongly disagree with it, that they're open and tolerant. But it seems like in practice, the best way to ensure that people kind of stay true to that to that principle of tolerance is for them to realize that people are going to try to shut them them down for opinions that they have. And thus, the only way to get along is for them to allow other people to say what they think 
so that they can be allowed to say what they think. And so that's why we ask about very specific things. I actually took examples of actual speakers that had been shut down, that had been canceled. You know, we've got Larry Summers, we've got Charles Murray, we've got um, Heather McDonald, and we tried R- R- Richard Dawkins. We found people that might offend sensibilities on the political left, people um, that would ascend sensibility, offend sensibilities on the political right, to, to really show how Americans can be offended on all sorts of dimensions and want to shut each other down. But when they when they put it together in aggregate, I hope it tells a story that if you want to share your opinion, you're going to have to let other people share their opinion. Right. It's it, it's a grand bargain. Right. It's uh, yes. it's a it's it's basic tolerance because you want to be tolerated. Exactly, exactly. And again, it would be nice if we were all principled about it, but it definitely seems that a really strong motivator to be principled is to realize that you're going to be shut down unless you let other people also have the same rights that you want for yourself. Do you think there's a strong understanding of just how, you know, as our colleague Fleming Rose has uh, demonstrated and said many times, uh, America is not just unique in this regard with respect to the freedom of speech. It's getting more unique over time. Oh, that, that is an interesting quote. I think it's very important that we realize how unique the United States is. And, and actually, it's a, an opportunity to be grateful, um, to have gratitude for the protections that we have on free speech. I think a lot of Americans would be very surprised to learn um, about speech codes and speech laws. Like These are laws that the government's imposing. This is not about like what a university says you can't say, but what the government says you can't say in other countries, um, especially in Europe. There are a lot of laws that live what people can say about the Holocaust. Um, I think a lot of Americans find that really surprising because, one, people think it's absurd that anyone would even say that it didn't happen. That's bizarre. Um, but for there to be a law that says you can't say that bizarre on, you know, false thing is also something that Americans just don't have experience with. Because we have the First Amendment, that protects Americans to say what they want, what they believe without the government punishing them, censoring them, sending them to jail or fining them, which that which could happen in many other countries. So when we talk about the freedom of speech, we're we need to be clear. We're talking about the degree to which governments uh, influence or directly control what uh, people can say in, in public without some sort of right. government sanction. There is an, right. a whole other area of speech regulation uh, on private platforms, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and other social media platforms. How, how, where do Ameri- how do Americans feel about that uh, if, if their support for the actual freedom of speech is sort of tepid, <laughs> even if they recognize that it's an important principle? Where do they come down on this other kind of private speech regulation on privately administered platforms? Right. So there's some competing interests um, at stake here when it comes to social media platforms. One is that I think most Americans would agree um, they would enjoy Facebook and Twitter more if there's not, you know, 
tons of hate speech and offensive language all over the platforms. You know, people don't want like pornography and racial slurs and things like that on the platforms. Um, They want some kind of moderation, some kind of content moderation of what is allowed to be on the platforms. And then the other component is misinformation. To what extent can people just post things that are wholly false or or very misleading and could lead people to make harmful choices. You know, for instance, someone telling them that they should drink bleach um, as a way to treat COVID, that's false, don't do that. (laughs) But to the extent that someone could post that online, should those things be allowed to, to spread online? Now, most people would prefer that those things not spread. But the problem is, in efforts to try to stop that, platforms have to make decisions about what to allow to stay up and what to take down. Because if they take it all down just in case, there's another very serious risk. And that that is that they take down the truth, that they censor the truth, that they take down opinions that might actually be accurate. So an ex- a classic example of this is what happened with masks early in the pandemic. Because platforms like Facebook were trying to go along with CDC recommendations at the beginning they were actually taking down ads that were you know advertising for masks and pe- people trying to say hey you should wear masks and then they we realized that there was a whole reversal and that we actually needed to wear masks and so then they started to police people that said that you should not wear masks and that put facebook in a very difficult position um, where they're becoming arbiters of the truth arbiters of science when they they can't possibly do that. That's that's way too much to ask of a private company. And honestly, I don't think they really want to be in that business, but there's a lot of people that are telling them that they have to be or threat of regulation or, or things like that. Um, so in some of the polling that we've done at Cato is that we've asked people how they are thinking, how do they make these trade-offs when we get specific about specific things that people could say online? Um, and what you find is that the things that people things that people could say that someone says that's false take that down um not everyone agrees what's false um the only thing that we asked about that everyone agreed was false is that if someone said that drinking bleach was a treatment for covid like 90 percent of democrats and republicans all agree but on all the other things we asked about things about covid things about um politics and immigration masks vaccines Um, the election, Democrats and Republicans do not agree what is conjecture, you know, what is up for debate and what is actually false and what is kind of so far proven to be true. And so how are we supposed to um, how how are we supposed to try to prevent the spread of, say, misinformation and and things like that, when we can't agree what misinformation is. And the only real solution to this is that we have to make some trade-offs and be open and tolerant to people that have opinions that are different than our own. Just because someone disagrees with us doesn't mean that they are necessarily false and that we try to get large institutions, whether it be government or Facebook or Twitter, to try to take it down, but rather to be open and to be tolerant and to kind of have some humility that even though we are pretty sure we're right, to realize that at least on occasion, we might be wrong. And that's why we don't try to police and censor other people's speech, even in the private sector. And and just, I guess, just be broadly skeptical of the things that you read online, whether they, uh, whoever they come from. 
<laughs> That's definitely true. That's definitely true. Try not to take too much medical advice from things that you read just in like your Facebook news feed. So I, I want to offer uh, some kudos to uh, the Cato Institute's polling uh, for the benefit of our listeners, which is whenever you do a poll, uh, you do talk about trade-offs. And one of the most important trade-offs that you talk about is uh, when, when we're talking about uh, a social program or some sort of Benny that the government is going to be handing out to some specific group of people, uh, the follow-up question is always, yeah, but what if it costs you something? And <laughs> exactly. uh, predictably, as you might expect, support for uh, some particular uh, handout or benefit drops <laughs> sometimes <laughs> precipitously if it costs uh, the person being polled almost anything. Exactly. I think a lot of people um, probably share my frustration with a, with a lot of public polling, this kind of state of, of America polling today, where we ask people questions about government programs or a law or regulation, and we only present the intended benefit of the program. And in the real world where, where we operate, there are always trade-offs. And so what we really need to know is if Americans really want a particular program or a particular regulation, we have to know what trade-offs they would be willing to make, what sacrifices they would be willing to make to obtain that new benefit. And so what often happens, and this is very common in political science, which is like where I come from, is they'll say, Look, if you look at all the polls, Americans support all the all these expansive government programs and you know tough regulations on business because look at the polls and the fact that we haven't enacted all of these programs shows that government's not being responsive to the people and we're a democracy so we're failing at democracy. All you have to do is just scratch the surface a little bit and then you find out why a lot of those programs haven't passed. Let me start, let me just give an example with student debt cancellation, because that's a poll that Cato recently fielded just a few months ago, where we asked people if they supported or opposed forgiving $10,000 in student debt for people making less than $150,000 for single filers. We, we basically took what the very close to what the Biden proposed plan is and asked Americans about it. We start by doing what all the other polls do by not mentioning any trade-offs. We just ask them about the intended benefit. And sure enough, just like all the other polls, we find an overwhelming majority of Americans say, yes, sure, let's cancel student debt. But then we follow up and we ask different randomly selected groups of respondents, you know, what if it meant that your taxes would go up? What if it meant that it would cause colleges and universities to increase their tuition and fees? Or what if it caused more employers to start requiring college degrees for jobs that don't need them? These are things that the research has a stat has associated with government lending, federal lending of, of college and universities. And so many analysts who study this believe that if you cancel student debt, these are things that will happen. Taxes, I mean, that makes sense, right? Because the program is supposed to cost about $500 billion. That money's coming from somewhere. So it seems reasonable to ask about that. And what you find is as soon as you ask about any of these trade-offs, support 
flips. It reverses. Strong majorities of Americans oppose student debt cancellation if it raises their taxes, if college tuition is going to go up, if um, it leads to this credential inflation where more and more jobs start requiring it when you don't need it, compounding the problem of people having to go to college to get um, to get jobs. And we do this time and time again. We've done this with healthcare. We've done this with paid leave, almost anything you ask about. And I think what it shows is that there are some costs Americans are willing to pay. They're not opposed to any cost, but there's certain costs that are, are unacceptable and that we absolutely have to take that into consideration when we're evaluating if the American people actually want ex these expanded government programs or additional regulations that many people are proposing. Emily Eakins directs polling at the Cato Institute. If you have a big topic or a small question you'd like us to talk about on Cato Audio, you can send it to us at catoaudio at cato.org, and we'll try to include it in a future edition. In 1943, three books appeared that transformed American politics and laid the groundwork for what became the modern libertarian movement. Isabel Patterson's The God of the Machine, Rose Wilder Lane's The Discovery of Freedom, and Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Even more striking were the women behind these books. Sometimes friends, at other times bitterly estranged, they became known as the Three Furies of Libertarianism, and their arguments for freedom helped change the nation forever. In his new book, Freedom's Furies, author Timothy Sandifer examines the author's lives, ideas, and influences in the context of their times. Order your copy of Freedom's Furies, available now at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.